Welcome back to the Megawatt Hour, a podcast box it series brought to you by Energy Voice in paid partnership with BDO. I'm Andrew Dykes, content editor at Energy Voice, where we are leading the global energy conversation. And in this series, we are examining how energy storage technologies are reshaping, reinforcing and recharging energy markets. Over the course of eight episodes so far, we've talked a lot about where we are, how energy storage works, the businesses behind it and the current state of technology, the grid, policy and regulation. Today, we are looking at where we are going, fixing our gaze to the horizon to ask what does the future of energy storage look like? With a net zero 2050 as the guiding star for nearly all policy and energy decisions, how much storage will we need to get there? Where should it be deployed? What stands in the way? And what new technologies and developments might change the speed of that journey? Gazing into the crystal ball with me is BDO Managing Director John Strouger. Sitting within BDO's natural resources and energy team and specializing in restructuring, John's expertise lies in protecting and realizing value in stressed and distressed situations. And he has worked to do that with numerous clients spanning private and listed businesses, financial institutions, regulators and government, and all with a particular focus on the energy sector. Joining us is Gerard Reed, an expert investment banker and founding partner of Alexa Capital, which offers corporate advisory, financing and asset management solutions across the energy, infrastructure, mobility and technology sectors as well as sitting on the Global Future Council on Advanced Energy Technologies at the World Economic Forum, Jared also hosts the Redefining Energy podcast, where he looks to foster deep conversations in decarbonization and technology with co-hosts Lauren Sagalan and Michael Barnard. It's great to have you on, Jared, as part of our first podcast collab. I'm actually going to throw our first question to you. We were talking before the call and used a great analogy to kind of articulate this. So I'd like to ask very broadly, you know, where are we with energy storage now and, and where are we going? You know, what, what do you see the future looking like? Okay, well, let's be clear. Listen, energy storage is all around us. You know, it starts with a very simple thing of a coal bunker, right? You store coal, you put food in a fridge. It's everywhere. Now, but when we talk, people talk today about energy storage, really, they're actually talking about electricity because we're moving into a world where there are going to be times of the day uh, and maybe even there's going to be you know, multiple days when you have too much electricity. And the question is, what do you do with it? Well, the obvious thing to do is to use that electricity, but sometimes you're not able to, right? So then the question is, you know, to store it. So to store it, you need to convert it into another form of energy. You can't keep it in electricity. So that means you put it into some chemical form, which is a battery, or you pump it up, pump it up a mountain and keep it up there. Um, so that when you need it, you can pump it down again and create electricity. That's sort of what you, what, what, where we're going. And the reason we need more storage going forward is because of the fact that, as I said, we've got periods where we've too much energy and sometimes we might even have too little energy. And we don't want to be turning on combustion engines and uh, fossil fuel generated power stations to do that. So we probably use it energy storage instead. You, you mentioned when we were talking about kind of the, the state of the market and we were talking a little bit about like the, the nearer term and the longer term. But I think you said kind of the, the fundamental thing was around the, the bankability of this sector and, and that's changed. Could you, you maybe articulate that? Yeah, well, so the... the if you think of it like this, we have energy storage within the electricity system at present and it takes the form of pumped hydro. In other words, you pump excess electricity up into the mountains and take it down the next day. When do you do this? Well, you do it at night when we're all asleep because you don't want to turn off that nuclear power station or maybe that gas power station. It's too, it's too difficult to do. It's too expensive. So rather than switch them off, you use that electricity to push water up a mountain. So we've been doing this for 100 years. It's completely different now. And the reason it's completely different now is because we now have volatility in the market. 
And what volatility in the market means is it's not just about, you know, uh, electricity being cheap at night. It could well be it's cheap at the weekend. Why? Because there's sun across the whole of Europe and we're generating too much power. So then you say, well, okay, well, maybe I don't use that pumped hydro because it's not as flexible. So I need something else. And so what's happening is people are using batteries. Right. And that's really, really the big change in the market in the last few years. It's not that the system needs batteries. It's actually that there's an economic case for batteries that wasn't there before. And that's, I think, the big, big change in, in, in the market, I would say, in the last, I'd say even the last, only the last five years, really, right? John, to throw that to you, I mean, we, we have talked a lot in the past few episodes about the, the development of that market, but obviously you, you work within the energy team. You know, have, have you seen that in the assets that you come across and the people that you work with? You've seen that development now into you know this huge sector that we see in the uk now that's absolutely so we've seen um, investment in battery tech as being uh, a huge growth area um as as, as gerard says it's a um it's a solution to a pro- an age-old problem. Whereas when you looked at uh, gas, gas-powered fire stations, um, nu- nuclear power stations, there's the ability to regulate that flow of energy. Um, whereas we're now looking at power sources that you can't turn off. You know, the sun doesn't uh, doesn't just turn itself off um, uh, and, and turn itself back on as and when people want to con- consume energy. Um, so we're looking at um, opportunities to harness harness the power and then release it when 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 people are demanding um, demanding supplies of electricity. And as Gerald's also saying, then that creates, because of energy usage and the um, the supplies of energy, it creates volatility. And it's a great opportunity um, in, the, in the market to um, use batteries to harness the volatility and create profit out of that. Because during uh, shortages of, uh, of energy in the market, obviously that pushes up prices. If you've got an ability to react to that, to release power into the marketplace, then you can uh, you, you can make money from that. But batteries are here. Are, are here to stay. The way that we are moving our um, our, our grid away from um, fossil fuels over the longer term, relying more and more on Mother Nature that's not under our control. Uh, ways of harnessing and regularising that intermittency um, is going to become more and more key to our energy strategy going forward. And and to the original question, investors are becoming more and more sophisticated um, in that market space, are deploying more and more capital to build larger batteries, invest in different types of technology. Um, so we are seeing it's a very exciting space to be um, as uh, as people with deep pockets start moving into the space. So you mentioned the market there. I think looking forward from this point and backwards slightly as well, we've had a lot of investment rushing into this and I think that's got us to where we are with this kind of sizable pipeline of projects on the grid and a lot of op- operation. You know, does that market just keep on growing, Jared? Do we just see capital being the, the driving force for this or are there other things that are going to affect over the next kind of 20, 30 years where we end up with storage being placed? Well, there's a few things. First and foremost, it, what it is, is there's a gold rush at present because there's lots of money to be made. And there are, and I give a really practical example of that. I, I know assets in the UK where, you know, you've had a payback period of a year and a half in your investment. So in that type of environment, you go, shit, I'm going to jump into that. And I'm going to say, I'm going to, I want some of that. But of course, that gold rush is going to come to an end. But then the question what comes after that, and it's a different market. And the different market is it's about risk management. Now, where I'm coming from that is, is that if I'm a generator, and there are risks that I sell my power for zero on uh, a windy day. I sort of go, well, what am I going to do to actually hedge that risk? Well, actually, put storage in. So rather than have to switch off your CCGT power station, what you do is you store it, right? You store it for the rainy day, right? That's sort of where we're going. Really, this 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 hedging is incredibly, and I, I would say that's even more important, not just to the conventional generators, but to the renewable generators. 
because again, what happens on the sunny day when there's negative power prices across continental Europe? Well, if I'm a solar generator, I'm getting negative price. I have to pay someone to take my electricity. Well, it actually makes sense to put storage in. So I think that's where the, I think that's the, the big next step is that. And I think the caveat to all of this, though, is that we are selling every day megawatts and megawatts of batteries in the form of electric cars. And they're not being used in the system, but they will be at some point in time. Like I have a 100 kilowatt hour battery in my home. I've got a 10 kilowatt hour battery in my front room, but the car battery, as I said, is 100. Well, you know, it doesn't make sense to integrate that into the system. So you see where I'm coming from? Early stages on this. But that's, I think that's also going to be another game changer in all of this, is how we integrate the, the whole electric car into this. And then, in addition, there's other forms of storage that are there that are not untapped at present. I can think of it a hot water tank. Um, you know, so they go, well, that's really low cost, low cheap and, and cheap. So why would I not just heat hot water when there's too much power in the system? So there's a lot of storage that, that probably we're not thinking about besides stationary storage. But I, I would say there's, a, there's enough need for everyone to actually have a good time in the next few years. You know? I'm, I'm going to push you a little bit on that. So I, I can see the, the end of this gold rush period, as, as we've been talking about, and kind of the, the, the limit for a market for services. But I wonder then, are you saying kind of co-location will become almost a necessary hedge in that you know, if you have a, a solar project or a wind project that doesn't have storage, do you think you're going to actually suffer in terms of your bankability? Oh, definitely. Without a doubt. And you're seeing this already. You're seeing that anybody who's building a solar installation today, they are making capacity available there to add storage at some point in the future. All of them are doing this. Now, storage and solar are much easier. Wind is a little bit trickier. And the wind, the reason that wind is trickier is because what tends to happen with wind is you get a, fo- a front that comes in and it's there for three days and then it drops away. Now, that makes it much more unpredictable in terms of, okay, do I fill my battery up now or do I wait for later or when do I do it? With solar, it's really easy because I know, listen, the sun comes up in the morning and goes, goes back down in the evening, right? It's much easier to predict. And uh, so I'd say there's a little bit more of a challenge in and around wind, but there are, all the, there are alternatives there in wind. You, you would sort of look and say, well, probably wind is going to be much more suited to synthetic fuels, hydrogen, all that type of stuff, just because of the fact that, you know, you've got three days of overcapacity rather than three hours, right? So on the on the grid so far, we've seen a lot of these kind of uh, 49.9 megawatts, just below this 50 megawatt threshold, which I think is to do a lot, a lot with policy and, and planning frameworks. I think we're starting to see a lot more of these sort of multiple hundred megawatts uh, projects come online. You know, how, does that just keep going? Does it just keep going? Is that what you see? Or there must come a point where we have a kind of a saturation point or we have as much storage as we need, right? So normally there is, but we have to realize that um, we, we've been talking about power market arbitrage. In other words, buy, buy cheap, sell high, right? But there's another issue, which is there's grid bottlenecks, okay? So you have to take power from northern Germany to southern Germany, from Scotland to England, uh, there's lots of wind up in Scotland. You can't bring it down. There's losses. You have to switch off power stations up in Scotland. And, and, and. This is a big issue, and you can't build a grid quick enough. So you sort of say, well, why would you have to put batteries in there? Okay, too much wind up in, up in Scotland. Save it in the batteries. And then you wait until, you know, the UK or the England, the, you know, the wind levels fall or whatever it is, and you, and you pump it down. That's sort of where we're going with this, where we've got bottlenecks. That, so there's definitely another market for that. And you can see that the advantage of this 
is time. Because if we decide we're going to build a grid interconnector from northern Scotland to southern England and we're going to start today, it's going to take us 10 years, right? You can sort of do almost the same with a battery in 10 months, right? You know, so... That's, there's, there's other uses for batteries that we're not thinking of. And I think that's bottlenecks is a really, really important one. But this requires also, if I may say, requires some regulation change. Um, and by the way, UK is at the forefront of this positive regulatory change to allow batteries in the system. There are other countries in Europe that still don't allow batteries at all be used uh, by, by the grid operator. And that has to change, right? That has to change. I mean, John, do, do you see this in... in uh Obviously, in your line of work on more kind of distressed or, or stress situations with assets, do you see storage playing into any of these just yet, or, or are we a little bit too early in the, in the gold rush, as it were? Well, I, actually, I see it in a slightly different angle. As when we um, when we're dealing with distressed assets, I'll step away from the actual construction of batteries as a um, as, as a means to generate. A, a revenue stream, but actually as a downside protection that uh, a lot of manufacturing businesses, obviously we got buffeted massively by by spikes in energy prices um, over the last uh, last 12 months, 18 months, and uh, a lot more interest in, in co-location of batteries at high high energy consuming um, manufacturing plants to actually have that um, a, a generation source on site with a battery next to it um, as, as creating their own downside hedge against, uh, against volatile energy prices. So that tends to be where we're seeing mitigating action from businesses that are seeing their cash flows impacted by uh, by, by energy uh, energy prices. And so, it, this is your advice: is always to kind of look at batteries as an option to start recovering or again hedging that value. Then is that is that the route that you take? Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's slightly cottage industry, um, but I think uh, we, we'll probably explore um, as as we go on. That until and I'm very interested to get uh, Gerard's views on this um, about an overarching policy of exactly what UK energy policy is going to be over the next uh, the next thirty years or so. Uh, I I see there being lots of lots of small scale uh, deployments of batteries and other uh, renewables technologies in response to uh, challenges from the central grid. Yeah, well, listen, John, I think that's a really great question because it, energy always goes back to policy, right? And um, if it's not policy led, what happens is the individual takes it in their own hands. And that's what's exactly happening today. Because people are going, well, why am I putting the battery in? Because it makes economic sense to me. I'm not waiting for that, you know, government or grid operator or a regulator to actually put the necessary regulations in place. I think the other thing that's happening as well is that the people themselves just want change. They just go, listen, one is we've got a cost element in terms of what we're paying for energy. And secondly, we also have a climate issue and people are sort of saying, well, I want to do something. And how do you do something? You do something by decentralized energy in or you buy an electric car. So there's a, I think there's a big consumer change in the market that certainly wasn't around five years ago. Because if you think of all the offshore wind, the solar that has been developed in the UK and other countries, it's all been policy-led. And, and now I, I think there's a change to customer-led, which is industrial and commercial, and the retail customer. And, um, and that means hopefully then the regulators and governments then will actually really begin to make good political decisions that make long-term sense going forward. Because if you do get this transition wrong, it's not going to be good for the economy, right? <laughs> That's what I would just say, right? Because again, energy is geopolitics, right? You can't get away from it. Uh, before we move us on, I'm going to pick up on one, one more point that you mentioned, Jared, which is pumped hydro. So at the moment, I think that's a kind of very much a case in point of an industry that is desperately needed and desperately wants to invest and to build, but is slightly lacking that policy framework. I mean, would you agree with that? Oh, I would say 
not fit for the 20th century is a lot of these pumped hydro assets. Okay, that's on a structural or a technical level? or I'd say on a technical level. And what, well, just think what they were used to doing. They were used to pumping water continually up a mountain for eight hours of time. Excess nuclear during the evening. Pump it up and then let it go slowly drown during the day. Okay, the market's completely changed now. The market might need eight hours of energy, and it might well be that there's only one hour when there are zero prices. So then they have to manage their assets in a different way. And that, and then, and there are very, very few of them are doing this. And what that requires is they need to put batteries beside their hydro assets. We're, we're layering, layering storage on storage. I'm, I'm intrigued. You, you have, yeah, you have to layer storage in beside it. There's just no way around it. You have to make your storage assets more flexible and more fit for the 21st century. Rather than when I see a lot of the utilities go, oh, no, no, you need to give us capacity payments and you need to do this and you need to do that. No, I, the, these guys need to rethink how they manage these assets. And that thinking I am not seeing among, I'm talking about like 90% of European utilities. I'm not seeing it. So now don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that you don't need a regulatory environment going forward to build new, but for the existing ones that are there, I'm sorry, you know, you, we've never seen such volatility in power prices in, the, in, in our lifetime. And I'm thinking, you can't make money, is it because there's none of the volatility in the market? Do you want more volatility? What do you want? <laughs> Well, what they need to do is change their assets and make them more, make them more 21st century capable. Work smarter, not harder. Yes, well said. So that's really interesting, Jared. We're talking about fundamental sort of technical challenges that we're facing. So I, I, I'm intrigued by what the barriers that you see for these various different types of storage going forward. You know, what, what's not going to get us to, to 2050, you know, based on the sort of trade winds that you see now? Okay, so look, I, th I think the biggest challenge that we have going uh, forward is what in, in German they call the Dunkelfleute. And that means these days in winter where you have no wind, no sun, and what do you do? That's the real challenge. And we do have periods where we have three days in a row of that. So that's the biggest challenge. So the question is, how do we meet that? Well, there's number one, we can do what we do in the past, which we do use storage. It's called that coal in a bunker or that gas or oil that's in a tanker. That's, that's what we do, right? We switch them on and those. Days. So you can continue doing that. Or you can say, well, listen, we don't want to go near those fossil fuels. So then you need some other way of forming, of, of saving electricity. I don't think that's going to be batteries. I think it's just, if I, if I look at it, for those three days that are there, if you really want to just do it through storage, then you're going to need some other, other way of doing it. Pumped hydro, there's just not enough capabilities um, in terms of, of where you can do it maybe you could do it in, in you could do it offshore maybe that's a possibility but i'm not seeing anybody really looking at doing that and you sort of look and say well what are the other alternatives yeah you could maybe do a little bit of compressed air and stuff like that but i you sort of look at this and you say well really if you want to do those three days and you want to do it clean you're going to move towards synthetic fuels and synthetic fuels is methane hydrogen whatever it is clean methane some form of gas or you can put it in a liquid form if you want. That's sort of where you go, and you, that means you're taking excess electricity and you're creating a synthetic fuel out of it. I, that's where you definitely will go if you if you want to go and say, I, I think solve that multi multi day period. That's the, that's where I would sort of be a little bit concerned about is how do you do that because really on a let's say a January day where it's really really cold, you need a massive amount of energy to be to store in those days and. And we need to probably think a little bit outside the box because don't forget we've been talking we're talking about electricity but actually the big the bigger challenge for the transition going forward is 
And the next stage of the challenge is we're going to decarbonize heat. Okay, well, there's three times more energy used for heat than electricity. So that challenge is enormous. So then we're probably also going to be need massive amounts of heat storage, right? Again, I said a hot, hot water tank with insulation. Just think of it like that at a basic level. But, you, you know, going beyond that, um, there are very interesting heat storage technologies that are out there. But I think we will look at a mixture of new technologies as we go forward in this transition, right? There's just no way around it, right? I mean, are there any uh, technologies that you see coming forward that you think are kind of real ones to watch or real ones that threaten batteries in terms of the same services that they perform? Or, I mean, are we, are we really talking about kind of new markets here again on that consumer side? I look forward and I say, I, we don't need a revolution in terms of technologies. If there is a revolution, great, but we don't, and we shouldn't hold out for it. We Actually, what we need is regulatory environments that incentivize the building out of these assets and you really need to just again remember i said to you we're decarbonizing heat now rather than just electricity so then the question is how do you think about that And you really have to look at the system and look out and say well how do i realistically get there and then what type of technologies do i use and i know governments don't like choosing technologies but at least you need to have a view of the way the world is going and i would say i won't say Take bets, because I don't like bets, but you, you need to have a view on where things are going. And again, I think the Chinese give us, um, we, we need to talk about China, because the Chinese are very good at taking these long-term views, and we're not in the West. That's what I would say. Well, that, that kind of brings us on to a point around geopolitics, which you said is kind of <laughs> central to the energy market. You know, the, is the supply chain a risk? You know, something that needs to be fostered, certainly in Europe, in terms of when we look the, the, to the role of storage over these, you know, next 20, 30 years? Supply chain's always been a risk in energy, right? We've, we've gone to war how many times um, over energy resources in the last 100 years? I mean, it's bottom line is resources is why people go to, go to war, right? And, um, and it's no different now. I also say to you that the wealth of the West, it was built, built on two industrial revo revolutions. You know, you think of the, the British wealth was built on industrial revolution, which was built around coal, right? You know, the United States were around to the 20th century. You could say it's built around oil and gas. Well, okay, we're in the 21st century. What comes next? Renewables and maybe, you know, next generation nuclear. Okay, well, where, who's, who's really leading this? Us in Europe, okay, the United States. We aren't building what we're not building any nuclear plants. Um, we don't have our own technologies when it comes to solar. Batteries you get from Asia. So who leads it? China, without a doubt. So again, it is uh, now we've woken up and realised because of the whole Ukrainian Russian uh, situation. Oh, oh my God, this is important. God, so we need to we need to have the lights on. If we don't have gas, we're in trouble. Well, if you don't have solar panels, you're in trouble too, right? If you don't have batteries, you can't electrify the automobile, right? So it's the same thing as well. So the geopolitics of energy are really critical. And the Chinese have known this for many, many years and realized that their biggest weakness as a geopolitical power is the fact that they've had to import oil from abroad, gas from abroad, food from abroad and they say well how are we going to counteract that and they go well let's jump on the next revolution i think it's really interesting we, we talk a lot about energy security and energy independence but obviously you know the the route to there is still still involves a lot of these other supply chains that we kind of either take for granted or slightly overlook and i think that's that's definitely a question you know it's clearly informing energy policy today and i think 
the next five to ten years, certainly, I, I don't think we'll lose sight of that at all. John, you, you, you were going to mention, I think, some, some downside risks as well that you perhaps see or, and also in, in the UK manufacturing. Absolutely. And um, I'll, I'll apologise. I think we said before the call, uh, restructuring tends to be uh, the ability to see the uh, the downside in every opportunity. I'll pick up on a couple of things, actually, that, that, that Gerard was just talking to you there about. We're going through a... Um, well, let's not beat around the bush. We're probably going through the once in a generation, once in a lifetime shift um, in, in energy generation. Um, and you don't tend to do that with a huge group of different people running in different directions. One of the reasons why um, I'd, I'd speculate, one of the reasons why China has been quite successful in forming a view and then following a particular path is because it's relatively good at, um, at tone from the top. These are national issues, global issues really, but certainly led at the national stage. There needs to be a joined up policy as to where we're going. And then the second um, second to that point, just remaining on the on, on the Chinese question, we're talking about batteries being at the heart of um, heart of the future um, of our energy policy, but we do still have to look at energy security there and say, well, where are the resources coming from to create the batteries that we uh, that we need to build out? My understanding is that the technology still sits very much around lithium ion being the um, being being the uh, uh, the technology of choice now where where is the, the lion's share of lithium in the world controlled where are the refining plants who who holds that technology there's still got to be a, a question mark over our, our own energy security even if we shift away from oil and gas um and and rely more more on evs and, uh, and and those styles of batteries so that in my personal view that does need to be um given given consideration when we are pushing towards an energy policy um for for uk for europe and uh, and, and at the moment is not one that i see an answer for uh, certainly not from 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 central policy i mean we we've already seen some challenges in the uk supply chain around the manufacturing of, of things like cells i think thinking of british vault obviously high profile kind of collapse earlier this year and and the uh Manufacturer AMTE, I believe, is kind of looking for some some urgent help as well. This is clearly that the UK players at the moment are unable to keep up with the market that we are in. So, you know, how how do you how do you then make sure that these kinds of players are around for the next? 10 years to play a role in this transition? Well, it's a very interesting question. I'll, I'll start on that with a truism, um, which is businesses fail um, when they run out of money. And uh, that either happens because they can no longer generate sufficient cash to sustain themselves. They can't get somebody to give them the money that they need to sustain themselves. So at the moment, you know, with a um, developing new technology, it's all about you know, loss-making businesses, finding backers and support for, for the investment they need to turn their technologies into a um, an exploitable commercial product so in in terms of what we're seeing in in the uk at the moment we have been world leaders and continue to be so um around around clean tech so your you wind solar but there are challenges from overseas that obviously the us is pushing um substantial investment into uh, the renewable space as it aims to shift away from uh, oil oil and gas well less, less gas at the moment they're shipping it all to us but um uh, inflation reduction act has, in, has introduced significant subsidy um and so in Investment is starting to move away um, from from the UK in, into the US, and we're also seeing investment in the UK um, in things like the offshore um, o- o- offshore wind f- uh, wind farms like Vattenfall walked away from uh, a planned investment off the Norfolk coast, and that was driven by commerciality around the the expected power prices. So you've got two things there: the US, which is looking to attract investment into its um, in, into its tech development, um, and uh, and then in, on the UK side, we are seeking to keep prices down, which arguably will uh, dissuade investment into the UK because these large investments uh, are not going to generate the sorts of returns that are required um, to to and over 
sufficient period of the time horizon um, to, to get the cash through the door. Jared, we've got inflation, we have supply chain issues, uh, we have various other problems. You know, are these are these white noise, are these kind of blips on the radar at the moment, or do you see them enduring throughout this transition? Maybe start with the good news. And the good news really is without China, we wouldn't have the low costs we have around solar, I would even say batteries, wind, electric cars, you can go on and on and on. Really have to be thankful for what they've done on that because that gives us a chance to actually deal with climate change in the world. And 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 I would say you have to ask, well, what is it the Chinese done that we haven't done? Well, they do two things. They do more and before. So in other words, more is really big when they go into something and they do it before. They do that quicker, right? We are so slow in Europe. And I'm talking not just the UK, we're just so slow. So we were the first in solar. We were the first in wind. And if I look at the wind industry, just for example here, the wind industry is in tatters. You've got Siemens Gamess on the verge of bankruptcy. I look at uh, I look at Vestas, it's not much better. You know, you have Nordex, German wind turbine, a mess as well. You go just incredible sort of um, difficulties in the whole wind industry. We don't have a solar industry. And now we're talking about trying to catch up in lithium-ion. And lithium-ion, if you look in the top 10 producers of anything in the lithium-ion value chain, there's not one European player. Now, by the way, you, you were talking about the UK. I don't think there's any UK player in the top 100, <laughs> right? So, so you sort of say, if you're going to go and compete because you say it's strategically important, then you really need as a government to go at this big and really look at it, the whole value chain and say, well, how the hell am I going to get my hands? John said it. How can, I, how can I get my hands on the lithium? How can I process the lithium all the way up to the end of the, of the, of the value chain? What am I going to do with the product at the end? Um, that's the way you have to do it. Um, otherwise, just don't do something else with your money, you know, because you're just going to lose, right? That's the way I look at it. And, and I would say, you know, when I was listening to John there talking, I was thinking to myself, what's the best way to describe China? Well, it's sort of the Saudi Arabia of renewables. And, it, and I really mean that in the sense that that's a fact. They've got the low-cost produce. I want low-cost produce, and it's also high quality. So I want the Chinese product. But they're also, what's very different than, than say, Saudi Arabia, they're also the biggest user of renewables in the world, right? So they're doing both. They're, they're manufacturing and they're the biggest implementer. You know, they, they'll buy, this year, you think of it, they will sell uh, more electric cars in their own market than Europe and the U.S. put together. They also install more solar than Europe and the U.S. together, right? And again, I say that as a good thing, not as a bad thing, because the world needs China to be doing what it's doing. But I do think uh, we just need to wake up to the fact that this is an opportunity for us. If we don't engage in this opportunity, it is a serious geopolitical threat going forward. It really is. Because it's, again, it's not just the, you know, if it's just the solar panel coming across, it'd be okay. It's okay. But it's not. It's the controls that go with it. Right? You go and buy a Chinese car, it's Chinese controls and it's semiconductors, it's next generation technology. You're going towards autonomous driving. Is it UK technology? No, it's not. It's Chinese. You know, you know what I mean? It's that we're missing the growth opportunity of this revolution. And that's for me the big concern. So you mentioned there at the, the beginning of this kind of segment about uh, the, the wars for resources. So I, I wondered to expand that out, you know, do you see any other kind of black swan events that you feel are, are a threat to to storage, whether that's a kind of major policy overhaul, whether it is yes, yeah, like a deterioration in relations between a party like China, you know, are there anything that, that keeps you up at night in that regard? Oh, no, the, the black swan event is, the, is, is Taiwan. That's the black swan event, because suddenly 
all bets are off, right? Then that really does, from I think from a from a climate point of view, it'll push us back ten years. But I just think it'll create create massive difficulties um, in the west and the east if something like that to happen. Now I hope it doesn't, but that is the black swan event, right? Yeah, because I, I presume then you know your your initial reaction is something like kind of tariffs and and currencies and all, all the things that we need to kind of keep us open and as lubricated as possible to make sure that this transition works and we can get what we need. Exactly, um, and you won't be able to get what you need. So in other words, what will happen is you've got great demand for solar, you can't get your hands on it. Your electric car, which you thought was Chinese, you suddenly real or you thought was European, you suddenly realize it's Chinese because they can't deliver the car because they can't get their hands on the battery. And 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 right. So it's uh, that would be the black swan of as I say, I'd agree with that. I mean, the, the last the last last time I was on a podcast, actually, was Energy Voice, November twenty one, um, and uh, I was talking about the the, the risks of uh, a Russian invasion of Ukraine and what that would do to the energy markets. Now, it feels like you're trying to draw too straight a line um, across to uh, across across to China and Taiwan, but I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not sure you are. A number of parallels there uh, uh, about us being dependent upon another country. For, for supplies that we have a potentially different difference a significant difference of opinion let's uh, let's water it down and call it that over um, over a sovereign state it feels daft um, if we were to just put that to one side and say it'll never happen because I think there have been too many things in the last few years that were sitting in the this will never happen box that have uh, that have sprung out so we call them black swans I think we might actually be moving into a world where uh, uh, that they are uh, that they're not black swans anymore uh, I'd say they're common or garden um, ducks coming home to roost by the sense of <laughs> I think we might be mix, mixing our met- mixing, mixing our poultry or whatever John I hope you're wrong, but I do. It does sort of remind me of the period before the First World War, where you really did have a Europe that was very integrated in in terms of economics, also in terms of families and all this type of stuff. And nobody really believed that we would go to into a First World War. And we sort of fumbled our way into it. You know, that would be the great risk if something like that happens: is that we just fumble our way in because you know the Chinese military is not speaking to the U.S. military. There's some friendly fire event, and you know, explodes. So we can just hope that they're really communicating with each other and trying to prevent this type of thing happening because it's uh, that would be a complete disaster for the world. Whatever about the Ukrainian-Russian situation, I think Taiwan would be a very, very, very big black swan. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm going to move us shortly away from the vagaries of geopolitics to uh, using energy in our homes and in our vehicles, uh, and we'll be right back after this break. To uncover the full story behind the numbers, you need analytics, but more than that, you want people who will harness their experience, intelligence and insight to interpret the raw data. BDO's UK Renewables practice works with investors and developers across a wide range of renewable technologies and from large corporates and funds to small community energy projects. The passion of our people and the breadth of our expertise enables us to understand the challenges faced by our renewables clients. We are partner-led, pragmatic and flexible in our approach, which is essential in such a dynamic and evolving sector. Our model audit team is ranked number one by both transaction volume and value on IJ Global, and we are proud of our track record in supporting many of the UK's listed renewables infrastructure funds, both with their fundraisings and their increasingly global M&A activity. Find out how we can help your company to succeed at bdo.co.uk and realize your business potential. BDO, more than a numbers machine.
So Jared, you've mentioned a little bit already about your uh, electric car and electric battery in your home. You strike me as a very informed prosumer. I mean, where do you see those trends emerging for, for home users over the next kind of 20 to 30 years? Oh, the economics are just going to get better and better and better, right? And, and what I mean by that is, if you think, what's the future look like? The future is that my the, dev- the heavy demand devices in my home, like I have a heat pump, for example, or the electric car, um, or actually have a sauna as well, those three things, big electricity users. Well, they're going to be connected into the power markets. In other words, you know, why would I, why would I go and you know, fuel my car when prices are high? I'll do it when the prices are low, right? But don't forget, I also have generation in my home. And the generation in my home is in the form of a solar panel up there. So I'm going to connect this all together. So you're going to connect this together to make it low cost. Now, now remember what I said, the key thing is to make it low cost for me. To make it low cost for me, you have to digitalize it, and you also then have to take me out of the equation because I do not really want to go. Oh God, did you charge your car? Oh, you need to charge this. You do. I don't want this. But we're not. We're going into a different world where it will all be automated and it will be in the form of service agreements and stuff like that. And I think that's really exciting because that's the opportunity to lower the cost of the customer, and that's what the customer wants at the end of the day. They want to have. They want to feel good. Feel good is. You know, you've got the right heat or cooling in your, in, your, in your home. And you also want to feel that you're doing something for the environment and for the world. And that means it's clean. And also they make it low cost. And I think that's the world that we're going into. And that's really exciting. You see this as kind of the flexible demand and the generation. I love the idea that, you know, there's some excess power on the grid and you can make your sauna a few degrees hotter just to soak that up. That's a, that's a perfect model for me. Exactly. And that's exactly where we're going about it, right? Um, because again, what you're doing is you're selling... You're selling quality of life to someone, right? That's what you're doing. You know, that you feel good about it. I am doing my bit for the environment, right? Um, and and there's, again, there's no reason for, for, for not having these technologies in place already today, except that there's a little bit of complexity in and around it and also there's privacy issues and stuff like that. But they're all going to be sorted out in the next few years, right? And and that's exciting. And you, you've mentioned kind of electric vehicles and, and vehicle to grid more generally as kind of the stationary storage killer. I mean, I take it you see that probably in, in almost in the short term really do you rather than the long term yeah well look if you just if you look at what cars you can do in terms of vehicle to grid it's very few so you've got really nissan and renault and now the new volkswagens now that's great but then you need to also have the ability to do two-way charging so where do you get those charges very few of them available these days and those that are there are not they're just not intelligent and stuff like this so that technology is coming and i think that's going to make a big 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 difference but then you also have to have regulatory changes right so because then the question is it's a little bit like if you're solar on your roof you might need two meters a meter for in a meter coming out the same thing by that there's a whole pile of regulatory issues that need to be solved in and around the car but this is going to be solved pretty quickly and the reason it's going to be solved pretty quickly is because number one volkswagen biggest automobile manufacturer in europe is it's a matter of life and death for these guys to move into services if you look what's going on in their chinese market whether the big they used to be the biggest player in the market they're not anymore their sales are down 30 percent year on year they don't have a good electrical op- op- uh, offering there they're sort of going oh my god we need to make sure we don't do the exact same thing in europe so they're pushing for regulatory changes in and around bilateral uh, bidirectional charging and I think the other thing that's happening is that there are utilities out there, next generation utilities, the octopuses of this world that are sort of saying, well, there's a huge opportunity to go in there with smart tariffs in this area. And once you start saving money for the customer, the customer goes, hey, listen, I want more of that. <laughs> can you do more? What can you do for me? And that's why I say, you know, there, there is this customer that's sort of saying, hey, I want change. Please, regulator, why aren't you doing this? Why, you know, move this quickly? 
And I would also say from a fleet perspective, think of it like this, you've got a bus fleet. Okay, if the buses all come in and they all charge at the same time, you're going to need a massive amount of, you know, huge big grid connection that needs to come into that garage. Well, if you have smart charging, you don't need that, right? And that's, as I said, the the, the economics of you will push the regulator to make the necessary changes, I think, quicker than what most people think. And And I said, that's very, 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 very exciting. John, I know you uh, are pro EV, but have your own kind of policy issue to do with around that. I mean, are we having are we having a bit of a two speed transition according to local authorities, depending on who, you know what they're prioritizing? Do you think? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll I'll, I'll bring my anecdote uh, anecdotal evidence uh, to the table here. Of um, as I was chatting before before the call, bought, bought a house during lockdown in the process of doing doing it up, and one thing I wanted to do was uh, was, was drop the curb and have an electric uh, buy an electric car, have that sitting on the driveway, uh, and in time have the uh, have the two way charging through to the grid but uh, unfortunately local planning rules uh, are that uh, development has to be car free so i'm i'm currently drawing a drawing a blank there uh, and in, i understand that in the borough that is um that's the prevailing policy which is interesting given that the uh, the south circular is about a mile up the road that uh, future future housing developments will not have necessarily uh, a car option with them so that this two-way charging um small battery opportunity gets missed and look from the environmental perspective as well i think that's a real shame because going back to the the the, the rare earth minerals piece i do think you want to limit the number of batteries uh, being produced potentially because i sometimes it can be a little bit like the nhs that oh, it's great they've got free health Healthcare, it's free at the point of delivery. It's very expensive in the background. So, I, so some some battery technology can be like that, which is it's great, or EVs great that it's clean um, as you're sitting there um, driving along. But there's been quite a lot of uh, pollution to, to create the battery, to create the vehicle in the background. So that the amount of limit, the amount we can limit, um, or Turn that on its uh, turn that on its head. Uh, the way that we can get the most out of the resources that we deploy um, has got to be the way forward um, from a from an environmental perspective as well. well. This is where the consumer and the market kind of hits up against these much larger macro policies, right? And you know, it, as much as we're we're trying to allow different uh, horses for different courses, there there comes a point where, like you say, you want to make the decision. You want to invest in storage, which may well be a an asset for your house as well in terms of this this V2G or to be able to use it as kind of your, your own personal battery for various appliances but you're limited by then the literally the distance to your door or whatever and and as you say it's that's good for for a, a larger mobility perspective and encouraging public transport and things like that but there are these other benefits that you miss out on so I I don't know how we weigh those up going forward. <laughs> Jared, I don't, you know, is that something that you've seen as well? Well, no, I was going to say, listen, what you're actually saying, John, is that the transition, and Andrew, both of you are saying the same thing, this transition is tough because we're taking, we're taking this old infrastructure and replacing it with new infrastructure and you've got a local authority who thinks he's doing the right thing, but if you actually really look in the big picture, he's not. And it asks the question then, how do, how, what's the best way to go forward with this transition? And I, and I really do believe that we need sort of, I won't call it a ministry, but you need to have an authority that really looks and sort of says, what's the best way from an economic point of view, an environmental view to move forward with this transition and sort of coordinates how we do this, right? And I don't mean a research think tank that says how many reports we do. It's not, it's, not, it's about how do we do this? But really looking at it from a systemic level, as opposed to, John, that, there's thousands of examples of that local authority thinking they're doing the right thing, but actually they're not, right? So it's not easy. 
It strikes me as that kind of this this wider shift that we see, I think, within the energy sector from like transport to the concept of mobility. And you're, you're almost at the, the sharpest end of that, John, with that, you you know, you have this is transport, which could end up in a kind of home storage and this other factor. But you're you're butting up against this trans this uh, transition to mobility, which is that you would want to be using these larger public transports as, as much as possible. Right. I'm going to move us on slightly. So uh, we also want to talk about the technologies that you have your eye on or the technologies that we think we'll see kind of on the next 20 to 30 years. Jared, you've mentioned a few already kind of synthetic fuels. I did wonder about some specific kind of battery techs. So we're, we're looking at sodium ion, we're looking at flow batteries, solid state, any of those exciting you or... Well, listen, listen, I, 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 the best way I would describe lithium ion is it's very similar to silicon in the solar space. We knew 20 years ago that um, silicon is probably not the best technology in terms of efficiencies, but it's still around, <laughs> right? Why is it still around? The reason it's still around is because every year costs have gone down and there's been technical improvements. The technical improvements is, you know, less silicon per watt, which is just, and, and also efficiencies going up. And, um, and there's no other competitive technology out there to silicon today. Like 98% of solar panels across the world are silicon, which shouldn't be surprised because actually it's the exact same thing in the semiconductor space, right? Now... What I will say, and if you look at the semiconductor space, it's only after 50 years the semiconductor space is now moving to compound semiconductors, different materials, with the exact same thing as solar. But I, I think we're, we're probably still another five, ten years away from moving towards compound materials. We do have, we're able to now take solar, uh, crystalline solar and put peroxide on it and stuff like this. So again, these are incremental changes year after year. Now, if I look at batteries, look, lithium-ion batteries, there's probably about 600 gigawatt hours of lithium-ion batteries that were produced last year. How many flow batteries were produced last year? 50? 100? Megawatts? Megawatts, sorry, not, not gigawatts, 100. Okay, both technologies have been around for 25 years. Where's your money? I know where my money is. It's not on flow batteries. And it's because of the fact that they had their chance and they've missed it. And they have blown it because what's happened is the market has sort of said, yeah, you might have a great technology, but I, I'm going to go with the bankability of CATL or LG Chem or Samsung. I'm going to go with there. Safer. Now, does that sort of say that there's going to be no technology development going forward? Or, of course there is. And so, you know, the obvious one is cars are one thing. They need high density in terms of batteries, right? You don't need that necessarily in stationary storage. So, you know, so something like sodium ion could be very interesting going forward. There's no doubt about that. But I do say there is, again, like silicon and solar, there, there's still more improvements to come in and around uh, the lithium batteries. And obviously, the first thing is, you know, you move to silicon on the so-called anode side. That, 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 that'll have a big impact. And also, then you will move to solid-state batteries. So I still see lithium making changes, but I just I just don't see anybody coming in and beating it in terms of the mass production battery that's out there. And that's despite all the bad press that you see in and around fires and this, that and the other. We had a car ship there in, in the North Sea on fire and I, I you know, I one of my neighbours complaining about all the cars, they're all electric. And I go, burnt, I've got 300 batteries in my home that are lithium ion. Okay, how many do you have? You probably have the same. I mean, what the hell are you going on about, you know, in terms of electric? So there, there, there's, there's a lot of blah, blah, blah in and around this, but the reality of it, this technology is incredibly safe. 
Otherwise, we wouldn't be using it in our homes the way we do it, right? It's, it's also probably worth saying that the, the market and the structures that we're creating are also kind of picking lithium as the winner anyway, right? If you're, if you're setting up an asset for 20 years and that's your, you know, your warranty period and your operation period, 20, 25 years kind of takes you almost to that, that threshold. So we're kind of already picking the winner, right? We, we don't need the other ones to come along. They're going to be here for that period. And as I said, the technology is cheap enough to be able to, and the cost roadmaps are cheap enough to be able to enable us to automize, sorry, to, to electrify the automobile and also just to put lots of station, lots of storage into the energy system, right? So that would be my view on that. And I did say, you asked me, the real revolution for me is in the heat space. Is better ways to storage heat. And at present, we store heat with hot water. That's what we do, right? We put it in tanks and put insulation around it. That's as basic as it gets. We are going to much better storage mediums in 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 the in the in the heat space, and I think that's the really, 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 really exciting area to be looking at. Because again, that's the real crucial one, right? So that's that that's the area I'm really one of the areas I'm really focusing on. Do you see that in the consumer space or in the kind of you know uh, district heating space as well? You know, across the board. I, I see it everywhere. I think it's 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 going to be in the consumer space, obviously heat pump related, but also the industrial level, right? If you think of it like this, you've got a big. Any, any chemical plant or anything like that, he needs massive amounts of heat. So how do you, you know, what's the best way to actually store that heat and reuse it again? So I, I think there's massive developments in that area that we're going to see going forward. And even at a simple level, consumer, you ask me, well, let's talk about heat storage. Well, the best form of heat storage actually is to buy a modern house. You buy a passive house today. I'm sorry, it doesn't let heat out, right? It uses, you know, one-tenth of the... Uh, say the energy that my own home uses per square meter. That's not because I have an old house, 150 years old, compared to a new house, right? New materials, right? So that's a form of heat storage. So that's why I say to heat storage are the massive developments in the material science space in and around what you do in terms of storage, right? We need to remember that, you know, the, the energy unit avoided is as valuable, if not, if not more, than the, the unit generated, right? Exactly, exactly. And by the way, I know that I know the scientist is going to say, Jared, that's not true. It's not really it's not really what you said in storage, but you're right. Uh, Andrew, you see you hit the nail on the head, which is storage is also energy efficiency for me, right? Because if I can use it or use less of it, well, you know, that's for me, it's like it's 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 like a form of storage. But again, I'm like I'm thinking it from an economics point of view, not a physics point of view, right? Absolutely. Um John, I mean, do you see enough focus on these new technologies? As much as we have the ones that we need already, you know, this this next stage, do you see that focus from from government and from companies that you interact with as to look into this next stage? And, you know, do we have enough available in that regard? Well, I'll, I'll start by uh, a plea, because I'm one of these people that has uh, has bought a, a drafty old house. Um, and, and, tr- and trust me, um, I, I felt it when the energy prices are going nuts. So if there's anyone listening who wants to develop a spray-on um, uh, sort of insulation that I can put on the house, on the outside so I don't have to clad it um, I'd be I'd be delighted and I think you'd retire a very rich person um, so but in terms of is there enough focus the energy space is it feels like it is in every other conversation it, initially it felt like it was a conversation that you had um, because you were in the sector um, I think once people started feeling that in their pocket, um, actually realizing what was going on in the environment, it's become a lot more of a just a general topic of conversation, which means lots more minds are turning to it, lots more focus is on it. So I, I do feel that in terms of a will um, for there to be improvements, um, there are enough minds. Um, but I think as we've as we've covered on 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 this discussion 
so far. It's how do you corral all these really good ideas and focus it down into actually delivering the solution. And that has to come from, uh, I think, ultimately the political classes. In the uh, business of corralling ideas then, I'm going to ask you for one or two kind of future predictions each as we go forward. So we're thinking about the, the big picture future of energy storage, some lines in the sand. Jared, you know, what two things that we need to look out for that you think will kind of happen as we as we make this transition? Well, I think you're just going to, I think the, the key thing that we're going to have to deal with is storage everywhere. You're going to have storage in your home, you're going to have it in your buildings, you're going to have your businesses, you're going to have it in your car, it's everywhere, right? That's That's the reality that we're moving into. And I know... You might say, well, we already have, most people don't realize we already have storage everywhere, as I said to you, but it's just, we've got new forms of storage coming our way and they're going to be much more intelligent. And as I said, that's good. It's good for the customer and it's good for the environment. So exciting world of storage ahead of us, I would say. I'll jump off in the same place as, uh, as Gerard, I think, which is I think we'll see lots and lots of innovation, uh, lots and lots of progress, but it's going to be remain on the um, sort of the entrepreneurial focus, um, I suspect, for the coming years. Alongside that, I would, ex- I would suspect, and I'll come on to something we haven't actually discussed in detail, with government announcements recently being a focus on carbon storage, I would suspect the economist in me would say we'll see more of a focus on actually lengthening the life of the fossil fuel assets, but reducing their carbon impact as a stopgap. While there's lots and lots of great innovation um, it is done on a local level, the grid will have to catch up and there'll be consolidation in the sort of medium longer term but still focus on on, on on small innovation to start with um, until we get to a stage where government is able to bring everything together, the grid brings everything together, um, and uh, there is consolidation among market players. Because the one bit we haven't talked to is what happens if there is a big bang change in energy generation? There's an awful lot of money has been lent against um, against fossil fuels, which are currently, you know, we haven't touched on it, I'm not sure if it's the right, um, the right podcast, uh, the right uh, topic of podcast, but um, stranded assets under the North Sea and uh, un- under uh, various other seabeds around the world, um, the impact that could have on on the lending uh, on on the banking system if uh, if those revenues are ultimately not realised um, could be enormous and certainly a magnitude of several times uh, the uh, the financial crisis. So that's something that's got to be managed uh, against this backdrop as well. Is uh, is banking balance sheets definitely well pending the one or two major black swan events that we've discussed it is somewhat reassuring to know that we have all the technology we need it sounds like we have all the will that we need and that the future will look very much like the present but a lot smarter and a lot more efficient seems to be the the takeaway from today Um, so that brings us to the end of our episode Thank you to John and to Jared for joining me. And thanks also to you for listening. You can let us know your thoughts through our social media channels or by emailing outloud at energyvoice.com. And look out for more podcasts from Energy Voice Out Loud and new episodes of the Megawatt Hour coming your way very soon. I've been Andrew Dykes and thanks for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.